Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Uh, hello, good morning and uh, welcome back to Strong Voices. Uh, coming to you from the Karma Radio Studios on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on 8 Kin FM in Alice Springs and Bantua and via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Today is Thursday, the 22nd of August, 2019. My name's Paul Wiles, and I'm filling in for Kyle Dowling this morning. Thanks for tuning in. Well, coming up in today's program, we'll be hearing from two experts uh, from overseas who are delivering a program two-way seeing, two-eye seeing. Uh, And um, it's a, a very interesting take on the recognition of Aboriginal cultural knowledge and uh, the significant role that it can play in today's um, d- today's um, areas of uh, health and well-being um, to in- seeing things from two different cultural perspectives and taking the best out of both uh, in helping people uh, maintain healthy lifestyles a little later in the program, uh, we'll be hearing um, from Eleanor Dixon from the group Rayella, who was recently uh, at the 2019 Desert Harmony Festival. Karma's uh, uh, Agnes Cusack caught up with Eleanor and uh, she'll be presenting that report. And we'll also hear the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news and uh, communities wrap up uh, from across the country. And welcome back to the program. Well, uh, healthcare professionals and community members are currently attending a four-day Two-Eyed Seeing Cultural Workshop Series, which is being presented by Dr. Lewis Mal Madrona and Barbara Mainguy. Lewis comes from the North American Indigenous origins, his mother being Cherokee and his father being Lakota. Barbara works extensively with Aboriginal women in the psychiatric system as an artist in residence. We caught up with Lewis and Barbara in the Karma Studios. My father is from Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and uh, my mother comes from Cherokee people with some Swedish and Greek thrown in. So I got a little European in here. So I grew up in southeastern Kentucky and was always interested in, in giving back to the people, to the indigenous people. And um, I've been working on bringing 
indigenous ideas into mainstream healthcare for a lot of years and also trying to support indigenous ideas for helping indigenous people and um, supporting the idea that that the, the things that we know and the, and the things that have worked historically are really good and that we should support those things and cultivate them and that we can have parity with the medical model of contemporary society, that the two can coexist in a kind of two-eyed seeing paradigm. I grew up in Canada, and uh, I grew up with a strong interest in the arts, and I also had a strong interest in mental health, and I began working um, with the arts in mental health settings, and I began pursuing ways of being helpful for people who had diagnoses and learned a bit about being a creative arts therapist and a drama therapist, and then uh, eventually came to understand that um, that often part of the problem was a system surrounding a person, the environment surrounding them, uh, poverty, economics, oppression, and trauma. And so I also took a social work degree so that I could um, help people negotiate their world both from a mental health and from a kind of environmental and systems perspective. And uh, I was happily working away in Canada um, and working in a transitional house for women um, changing from living in institutions to living by themselves. And... uh, I ran into Dr. Mel Madrona over there and uh, got lured to the United States. And that's where I became involved in working at Lewis's uh, from the Lakota tribe and began to go to Lakota ceremony and events with him and began working with people and learning a lot about culture. And, and now I work in a center for, for five tribes in the northeast of the United States the two-eyed seeing concept what we understand is obviously for thousands of years first nations peoples have had their own way of dealing with depression mental health issues trauma and colonization but the wider western society for many many years was very reluctant to take on that historical knowledge because uh, what wasn't considered scientific or equal there's a bit more to indigenous cultural knowledge than meets the eye exactly and the knowledge systems that exist in the first nations world two-eyed seeing initiative is a way to include those knowledge systems as equally relevant to the scientific method and it's not as a simple binary divide it's not saying that you know one of them looks at the at things in this scientific way and the other one you know sings songs and writes poetry but it's a way of of Looking in an experiential way, for example, one of the people that I know who who's a, a real leader in this, her son was being taught how to speak to plants because in Ojibwe culture, if you're going to understand about plant medicine, then you spend a year talking to a plant before you 
even think about working with it. And if you think about it, there's a lot of ways of understanding that as knowledge collecting. You're, you're looking at the plant, you're sitting with it, you're studying its environment, you're getting to know what it does. You learn an awful lot about it in a conscious way. And uh, one day her son came home from, or his, her son went on a nature walk with the school, and he began talking to the plants, and the teacher ridiculed him. And when he came home that day, he refused to speak Ojibwe and said his mom was silly. So his mom went to the school and said, what's going on here? And she discovered that the teacher had said, don't be silly, that's not going to teach you anything. And so she went to work and, and really started investing in this idea that we had to radically accept someone's knowledge system and she actually came up with the term epistemological genocide to describe what happens if you try to obliterate somebody's way of knowing and to take a more serious look at the way of knowing and I think that's really relevant in healthcare because I think it's really easy to dismiss indigenous ideas of of well-being and, and of the world and how the world works if you think that only European ideas ought to be considered um, without understanding that people thought about things for thousands of years and they came up with some really good stuff. And I think that's what we see with, with narrative work now. We know that that's profoundly rooted in indigenous traditions, the idea that story is so meaningful for people. And we see that now taken up everywhere. In, in, and people are doing the neuroscience of story. So that's just one example. So the two-eyed seeing movement was started at the University of Cape Breton. And it, was, it, it, it succeeded in enfranchising in Canadian um, research uh, uh, rules, ethics, that knowledge systems had to be considered as equivalents. And it was really looking at, at the importance of holding that in an equal space to our ideas of Western ways of knowing things. Lewis, as a, a physician and a psychiatrist, you obviously, as a First Nations man, would have experienced perhaps um, while you were training and going through and, and learning the so-called Western recognition of, of those particular fields of expertise. Um, what was that journey like for you? Well, it was interesting because when I was training in psychiatry, one of my professors wrote a paper about how the Lakota people were too primitive to undergo psychoanalysis. And I got in trouble for challenging him and saying that maybe it was stupid to lie on a couch and talk to someone who didn't talk back to you, that no one in their right mind would do that. So definitely, I experienced epistemological prejudice and the idea that scientific knowledge is the best, no matter what it is. And and if you're in medicine long enough, you know that things change every two years, and what was true two years ago is false today, that we forget that. We're sort of ahistorical in medicine. So... The Lakota ideas of balance and harmony and that we have that everything is simultaneously physical, emotional, social and spiritual is reflected in the psychobiosocial approach of Ingalls, which was came out in a paper written in nineteen seventy seven and has been largely ignored by psychiatry, which has become entirely biological. And um, now there's some talk that maybe that's a good idea. 
So maybe they're catching up with the Lakota. Similarly, here in Australia, what we've seen is, you know, since colonisation, more than 200 years of total disregard for cultural knowledge and understanding. And obviously, as the uh, oldest living culture on earth, uh, Aboriginal, Australia's Aboriginal people have a great deal to offer. And you did mention earlier that you've been coming uh, to Australia now for a number of years. Uh, um, Have you noticed any shift in that time, any great movement in the acceptance of uh, local cultural knowledge. I think that's happening all over the world and it and it's slow and but it's steady. And I think a lot of it is indigenous people claiming their own power, taking power back and saying this is how we're going to do things too bad for you. And medicine reluctantly comes around when faced with that's that stance and says, well, okay, well, you can do your thing. We won't interfere. But in mainstream academics, I think it, it's not really acknowledged. But on, on the fringes, it's really growing. And I think the two-eyed seeing program at Cape Breton University is an example of that. And it's spreading all across academic institutions in Canada that nurses are writing papers about two-eyed seeing and anthropologists and and maybe less so physicians but but I can see it growing and I think the same thing is true in the United States and in, and in Australia that that there's a growing respect however slow and however it may not reach the core mainstream of academia it's there I can see- And welcome back to the program. Well, if you've just tuned in, we're hearing from the presenters of the Two-Eyed Seeing Cultural Workshop series currently underway here in Mbantua, Alice Springs. Uh, Dr. Lewis Mail Madrona comes from uh, North American Indigenous origins. His mother's family is Cherokee and his father's family Lakota. Barbara Mainguy works extensively with Aboriginal women in the psychiatric system as an artist in residence. Barbara, working in the field of counselling and mental health, I mean, uh, you'd be well aware that um, the suicide rates of young uh, Aboriginal women in this country are are at appalling levels uh, globally. Um, The mental health and well-being in 200 years has shifted dramatically, and how Whitefella Health and Medicine is dealing with that Obviously, there needs to be some changes made because what we're seeing, those rates aren't coming down. We have seen considerable investment um, from government to try and change it, but there's more top-down rather than from community level. And and I'm sure that you would have some thoughts on the involvement of community in, in solving those problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, you know, it takes a village. When people live a day-to-day experience of feeling excluded or insulted or day-to-day, you know, casual racism, that kind of thing that goes on, when that's happening day-to-day, you can't really just go in there and say to them, 
Let's do some self-esteem exercises. You know, it doesn't really work like that. It takes a community of people and listening. You know, it's really simple. If you listen, if you listen to people and let them tell their story and then respond showing that you've heard, you already are going to do a couple of hundred times better than you would if you're just sitting in an appointment and saying, well, are you depressed? Do you get out of bed in the morning? No, let's give you this pill. You know, it doesn't work that way. And the thing that keeps people alive is feeling belonging, feeling like they have meaning and purpose, feeling like their life goals are achievable. And I mean human goals, like respect and belonging and intimacy and, you know, family and and safety. Those are the goals that need to be addressed to make people feel like they can kind of stay on the earth and be comfortable. So we need to gather and we need to tell stories that are good about each other and create good stories and create good community. A lot of young Aboriginal people seem to be going through identity issues. Who are we in this day and age? We were once proud warriors like uh, the uh, First Nations in America. They were warriors and they were in control of their own destiny. Unfortunately for Aboriginal people for the last 200 years, that has been taken away from them and they now have very little control over their own destiny in many senses. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, there haven't been efforts efforts made and ongoing efforts to give people some sense of ownership uh, around, uh, you know, these issues. But basically, many of the young men, at least, want to be gangster rappers or, uh, you know, they've attached themselves to this American culture of, of what to them looks well, that looks like something I want to achieve or I'd like to be that. Um, How do we help young uh, Aboriginal people in these remote communities gain a sense of pride in who they are and respect who they are? I see a lot of efforts on uh, in the ad- advertising that we're seeing on television while we're here towards encouraging family and engagement and reading to your kids and I think it's it's as easy and as difficult as saying connect with your community connect with each other and grow the hero story among you you don't have to do great things to be heroic you don't have to do astonishing things to be a warrior you can be a stand up person you know who feeds people you can be somebody who creates community balance you can be somebody who looks after education um in the lakota world there's a a a statement a phrase you know education is the new buffalo and uh, you can be somebody who helps people figure out who they are you know you can be somebody who teaches them skills of hunting you can be somebody who looks after reads to your kids you know it there's there's a lot of ways and 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 the American gangster culture is seductive because it's it's a sort of it, it looks really powerful. It looks like a kind of powerful, sexy money making thing to do. Um, they don't explain to you that that there's two percent of people. It's like you know getting into the NBA. You're, it's very difficult to get there. But you know people like. Quincy Jones really cultivated the music industry for young black American men. He really invested in training, and they didn't all become superstars, but providing music and dance, we're hearing about, you know, dance opportunities being provided, and providing things for people to do that celebrate 
who they are seems to be a good place to start. Lewis, I'm sure over a long period of time you've you've helped many young Lakota men going through these issues of their perception of who they are as a warrior and the life that your people may have once had but transitioning into today's world i mean are they facing similar issues around identity they are and i know people that are negotiating those questions well we know some um, powerful ceremonial leaders who also have heavy metal rock bands and they're finding ways to do both There's a music group in the United States called A Tribe Called Red, which is combining um, traditional music with rap and heavy metal. And I just love their music. I think it's awesome. I know some elders who are shocked and appalled by it, but it's like saying to the elders, look, you know, we're in a new world. We're in a world of cultural sharing and cultural fusion and this is what they've come up with and it's really good and um, so the idea that you can be of, of more than one culture is emerging and that you don't have to you know, you, you can't expect young people to sit around on the reservation and sing traditional songs their whole lives you know, they, they have to engage the contemporary culture and I think if they have their own culture if it's strong for them that they can create some amazing fusion ideas that no one would have ever thought of and and I celebrate that I think right on you know because they're making sense of their world in a way that works for them that I can't do because I'm not in their world, you know, I'm too old. Um, I have too many different life experiences. And um, I think we just have to be comfortable with people making their way and allowing people to be both traditional and modern at the same time. If you had a a thought to share with other practitioners around the country, what are some of the, the thoughts that you might share around connection with with culture, a different culture? I would say to listen often and speak rarely and absorb what people are doing and to let go of the idea that what you learned in medical school is the truth and the only truth, but to be open to seeing other ways of learning and other ways of gathering knowledge and other ways of practicing and to to just take it all in without judging it or interpreting it or or making it inferior but to just say okay here i am let me see what this is all about let me experience this and from a stance of humility and not of superiority not of knowing better or best but of true curiosity. Barbara, um, going forward, uh, apart from the, the, the big push to engage more Aboriginal psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, for people working in that field, what other things do you think might help? 
I would say build relationships. Be open to creating a real relationship with people. Listen, like Lewis says, just listen. Pay attention to what they're saying. Be guided by what what they're asking. And, uh, you know, give help where appropriate. But if you're really respecting the people that you're working with, if you're really listening to them, then they tell you what they need. And go with that. Go with what they need. Don't think you know best. We've uh, been listening uh, to Dr. Uh, Lewis Mail Madrona and uh, Barbara Mainguy, who are uh, currently here in Mbantua, Alice Springs. They've been presenting uh, a four-day two-eyed seeing cultural workshop series. You're listening to Strong Voices, Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Well, joining me live in the Karma studio, Damien Williams joins me for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander News. Damo, welcome back. Yes, good morning. Well, what's happening? Um, well, yesterday we had uh, a high-profile person um, meeting the uh, um, the some of the leaders from um, Murujulu. Uh, Pauline Hansen went down there yesterday and met with... Um, the traditional, some of the traditional owners um, from the Animal Maya Council of Elders, uh, Mr. Reggie Uluru and Mr. Cassidy Uluru, um, and had a talk with them about uh, ways forward um, if the close, if the cl- of the closing of the rock um, climb. And uh, uh, she was talking with them about. Um, well, Hanson said the traditional owners of uh, Uluru Karajura lands invited her to Uluru to discuss their f- future following her calls for the climb to remain open. And um, so, uh, and I think, um, I believe that she did climb after uh, talking with the Anu elders. And um, I think uh, there's been there's been quite a few. Um, uh, different. There's a bit of backlash from that as well. Um, uh, Celeste Little uh, posted on her Twitter um, saying that uh, the she's been planning to close the Uluru, um, climb Uluru after meeting with the Animal Major Council of Elders. It's in, inappropriate for me to wish her harm on someone else's traditional land, so I'm just going to um, school and refer to her as a as Cronk features, um, and then on on her Twitter. So um, yeah, she's uh, some people have been um, pretty annoyed. That's, uh, well, I, I, I suppose um, the important uh, thing, hopefully, that will come out of the meeting is that Pauline Hanson actually listened to what the traditional owners were saying and takes it on board, um, regardless of um, her own uh, performances and, um, you know, lining up for the television cameras. There's uh, a much bigger issue at stake here, and, and uh, the traditional owners have been saying for a long time that. Uh, they're not happy with people climbing Uluru. Uh, that's their call. They're the traditional owners. And uh, uh, let's hope Pauline Hansen did hear the message. And uh, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Damien Williams, um, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Mob. This is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. 
Earlier this week, we heard uh, some interviews from the 2019 Desert Harmony Festival. Today, we'll hear from Eleanor Dixon from the group Rayella, uh, which is fronted by Eleanor and her father, Raymond Dixon, and extended family members. Karma's Agnes Cusack uh, went up to the Desert Harmony Festival, where she caught up with Eleanor, who starts off telling us uh, a little bit about herself. My name is Eleanor Naliri Dixon and I come from Malinja community. It's 200 um, kilometres north of here. And the difference between your community and Tennant Creek? Um, there's only 30 people or less. So it's a small, um, small community, yeah. And how important is, is the song and, and culture? How do they combine in your community? Um, it's interesting you asked that because I was... Um, talking about that and reflecting on that today um, I think the most important thing as storytellers because that's what I like to call ourselves I mean call myself and my dad because we have stories to share and it comes um, you know from our experience um, in the world and how we'd like to tell our part and share it because it's a gift we'd like to share and through music it's it's not so confronting it's just kind of met with on a spiritual level everyone can meet in the same space when it comes to music and I think that's a healing thing for the audience and myself and my dad and the band and singing in language, how important is that to you? Singing in language is very important, um, not only because we have to keep um, the language alive, but also because it's um, the way country communicates through us. I was talking about it today, and basically we are instruments. I'm just a singer, so what comes through me are stories from my country, from... Um, from the environment, from the nature, the natural place in which I feel connected to. And that's where I sing from. And in language, um, language is not, it's not my language, it's the language of the land. So I'm just communicating what the land wants to say. And what's the difference in terms of growing up between being in a small community like yours and somewhere like Tennant Creek, which is small, but not as small as where you're from? No, it's, um, it's, very, it's very different. We get, to, we get introduced at a certain age to certain places. Um, I know that I've been privileged to have been um, to Darwin for boarding school and stuff like that, so I think that part is has been it, it came with the um, responsibility um, so like experiencing places I've been to so many places in my life now this far so I know what it feels like to be in Sydney compared to the community I'm, I come from and Tanner Creek is you know the smallest town in the like northern territory in the middle on the highway so this is still kind of it has an okay feeling and a sense of still home. It's closer to home, so... And most of my family are still here. But if I go further down to Alice Springs or further down... I mean, I still see my family. There's still more of my family in Alice Springs, but further down and further down, it's just... It's a different kind of world, so I'm kind of entering a different kind of 
Yeah, another. so cultures within cultures, which I think it's like a dimension. The, the rest of Australia doesn't understand. <laughs> no, they talk about Aboriginal culture, but no, I think, and and the understanding of it, it's it's because it's we, you know, First Nation people, Aboriginal people, we live in a way where we're still connected to nature. We're still. Um, carrying on like the cultural protocols are tied to nature so the things that we do is through because of our country like every band sings about their country and the love of their country and that's that's kind of it's important for our spirit to sing sing ourselves I was talking to Lester Peterson earlier and he said that he came to school in Tennant Creek yep. from his community. Yep. And while it's only 300 kilometres away, he felt that he was taken away from his culture. Yeah. It, it's hard to understand yeah. that, but he, he felt very strongly about it. Yeah, and it's this, it's, I mean, that old fellow is so much older than me and has so much knowledge and wisdom and so much experience. Um, from when I first went to boarding school in Darwin, but that that is a completely that's kind of the same way I felt. I've moved from out bush and went straight to boarding school, and it was a different kind of lifestyle change, um, different um, sense of communication, and um, I had to think more about what I say, think more about what I do instead of feel what I need to do and. But I think I've learned now that I'm old enough to realise that I have the power to feel all the time. And my music, uh, you know, actually has a sense of that. It, I try to stay true to the nature of sound as well because it's important to remember myself, who I am, where I come from, and acknowledge that all the time. And when you talk about healing, they say that in Tennant Creek there's a lot of that that needs to happen here Definitely. in terms of the community. Do you think that's true? Definitely. I think every place has their story. Every people and country are one. And so the story has been separated, divided into the people and the culture and the land and the culture when it was one and the same thing. It still is. And I think that's where the the understanding needs to be towards understanding that people and country are not two different things they're, they're one and the same and that if you communicate to country you have to communicate to the people first and that's the, that's a part of cultural protocol and that's that's ex, you know um, acknowledging the land and and the keeper we say Nguramala and it's acknowledging that one of country is bigger than us so think about how you manage to do that I spoke to the mayor and he's talking about all this money that's coming and you know I mean how do you how do you fix the sort of problems of the kids on the streets here well it's a to be honest it's not a hard thing I can I can there's just a big gap there's always been a big gap because it has to come from someone who is an Aboriginal leader, someone who can understand what that psych the psychology of that child, because every child experiences trauma on a psychological level, on a physical level, and on a spiritual level. And that's three different things that needs to be healed. And it's hard work, and usually when there's money involved, it's always just 
actually let's just chuck in one thing and that'll solve everything but it doesn't because it's not always about the money it's always about taking a step one step at a time and understanding the true nature of a person the being of the person and children are the most innocent and they don't they're not troublemakers they're not the ones who have the problem they have intergenerational trauma and it's something that should not be put on them or projected on them they can't help it but be born into it and that should be recognized first and not treat them like feel sorry for them but just acknowledge that it's not easy being a first nations person in a country where there's another on, a culture on top of it we have to navigate through two different cultures and my children have to do that i think about that all the time so i worry about that and so the songs that i write i try to write it so that i can give them a sense of direction and i can encourage them to take wise steps and not to worry too much about the future because i'll do that for now but i'll just provide a safe space and i i love children i want to be able to protect all children and take care of them and just and so how do we do that you said that it's it's relatively simple it's, it's not about dollars what should happen there should just be programs where it's not just about doing the hard work it's not about like putting a music program or putting arts program or a creative project it's it's about just putting a project that focuses on these situation if there is trauma get a psychologist to sit in with the community with the parents get counselors you know like create a safe space just a safe place you can just cut out a building put it as a women's shelter or a women and children's shelter and the kids may be hungry and they don't feel safe at home they can go to the shelter they can sleep there they can go for as long as they want but they have people who can understand their needs people who can actually care for them and their needs and not judge them not project anything on them but can be caring and nurturing towards them and their mothers because every mother's deserve to feel safe in the world too and it's not about like putting pointing fingers even at our men because it's not about that it's just about acknowledging that people suffer everyone suffer we might all have different sufferings and struggles but that doesn't mean you marginalize someone for that struggle you acknowledge that everyone's struggle is different and that's moving forward when you actually acknowledge that and everyone the, everyone can meet yeah, yeah everyone can actually look and say well you're not different from me you know you're not different from me you have struggles have compassion for another person because they are a person and especially children because all children deserve to that's their right to feel safe in the world so you put a whole lot more police here that doesn't solve the problem you don't put police police brings tension brings division brings um unwanted energy because they carry law that is completely different from our law and on a psychological level it's traumatizing to be told by a different person who carries different law that you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that get a elder who has carries this law from this country to do that that's the respectful way and that's the way of acknowledging the culture and the people
And if Tennant Creek worked in that way, that the elders were the people who called the shots, it would be a different place? It would be a different place. But you just got to give them a safe space, even the elders, where they could work their magic. And then you'll see the change. That's where it all... It'll all... It'll all start to... One thing will happen, then the next and the next, and you will see change. Just give them a place to feel like they have power, like they have a safe space to do what they need to do as well. I would do that. I would volunteer. I would just come and be at the shelter. I would stay up all night to just look after the kids. I would drive around, pick them up and say, you want to come over? We have food. We have um, clothes. We have beds. We have games if you want to play a game, as long as you're in a safe environment. So last night I watched kids outside in the street, in the main street, and there's all these empty buildings, you know, empty shops, but they you just know gotta, where to go. You just got to give them something to do, and kids are curious. That's the part that adults we grow out of, and kids, they, they, they want to explore everything. They want to know what's in that building, what's in this building. Not to do it because they want to cause drama or, you know, um, cause something, problem. It's because they just don't know what they're doing, but and they're curious. And they've got nothing else to do. And they've got nothing else to do. So the two things happen in their mind and they're not bad. They're not bad. They're just curious kids and they just always need a safe place. Or they get into trouble. Or they get into trouble. Well, that was uh, Eleanor Dixon, and uh, Eleanor was talking with Agnes Cusack at the 2019 Desert Harmony Festival. Well, uh, we also heard from uh, Dr. Lewis Malmadrona and Barbara Mainguy. The interviews will be up on the webpage shortly. Uh, that's the show for today. Uh, many thanks uh, for joining, uh, tuning in. Um, if you have any stories you'd like to share with us, give us a buzz here at uh, Karma Radio. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, the best of strong voices for the week. Look forward to your company. Strong voices. Good job, good job.